The story of the miller's wife. On the very edge of town, so close to the graves that she could smell them, a woman hesitated outside a small hovel. She reached into her cloak and removed a tiny hidden necklace in the shape of a letter T, which she kissed and put away in a coin purse. Nervously patting her elaborately styled hair, she knocked, waited for an answering call and ducked inside. The hovel's only occupant sat at a tall table, writing labels on a series of dull, dirty jars. Her dark hair was wild and unkempt, and as her visitor peered in horror through the shadows, she saw a flash of snakeskin ripple through the greying curls. The woman's funereal black dress matched the grime and smoke stains that covered her tiny home. A basket at her feet held a collection of crude dolls made of wood, wax and lead. Another by the table contained a pile of papyrus scrolls. Well, this is a surprise, said the black-clad woman, and her voice was surprisingly normal. I know you, the miller's wife. You don't believe in the gods. I believe in one god, her visitor mumbled awkwardly. But that's not why I'm here. Obviously. The witch sat back in her chair and patted her lap for her black cat to leap up to her. But the cat was having none of it and stayed put in his bed. I've heard you can enchant men's minds, continued the nervous monotheist. Make them believe what you want them to. Make them think differently. Sometimes, came the reply. Usually, women come to me because they want men to fall in love with them. Or to fall out of love with them and leave them alone. Which is it? I want my husband to forgive me, said the visitor. Ah, that's trickier. There was a silence until the woman realised she was supposed to be filling it. He caught my lover. The boy's just a kid, really. Even younger than me, not by much. His beard is mostly fluff. My husband announced that since we share everything, we should share the boy too. Took him away for the rest of the night. Then in the morning he had him whipped and threw me out into the street with a note of divorce. I see, said the witch, poking around in her pile of scrolls. So you want your husband to love you again? I want him to forgive me, said the woman. I want him to take me back. I want him to be blind to my lovers, like he was before. <sniffs> said the witch, heaving her breath out of her mouth. I can try, but no promises. She pulled out one of the wax dolls and held it up for inspection. Love is easy, you see, she said, holding it towards the visitor. Most people say love, but they really mean is sex. Bit of heat here, she gestured to the doll's private parts. A little heat here and here, gesturing to its heart and head. That's all anyone really wants. Besides, the lover is generally fairly besotted themselves, and that helps. But you, you're not. You don't really want him, you just want to live in his house. And you don't want love or lust. You want forgiveness, which is much harder. The woman turned away for a moment, biting her lip. Then she seemed to come to some decision. If you can't make him forgive me, she said, if you can't make him take me back, I want him gone. You want him to leave town? There was a glint in the witch's eye. She knew that wasn't her visitor's meaning. I want him dead, 
the woman replied. Now that, said the witch with a smile, I can do. In the heat of the day, slaves and animals together trudged weary circles, grinding flour at the mill. A small group of overseers strolled the grounds, free of tethers, wielding whips and canes. The canes were for the mules and donkeys, which, blindfolded, were spurred on to go round and round and round, eternally pulling the millstone like an endless spinning top. The whips were for the human slaves who worked alongside the animals. Branded on their foreheads to make sure they could not run away, clothed in a skimpy bit of loincloth per man, most of the slaves were shackled to their posts, their backs crisscrossed with welts from the lash. A layer of fine white flour had settled onto the sweat on their skin, giving them an eerie and otherworldly appearance. They did not speak, they barely breathed. A moment's hesitation and the lash came down again, even more easily than the cane was put to the animals. The animals were worth more. Lucius, the house slave, scurried across the grounds of the mill with a note for his master. He was nervous. The message was yet another plea for mercy from the mistress. He shuddered as he passed close to an overseer in the act of raising his whip to strike one of the mill slaves. Lucius paused to take a breath a few feet away from where the miller sat at a high table going over his accounts. A stir and the unusual sound of the slaves' voices raised to a low murmur made both of them look up towards the gate. A woman had walked into the mill. Not the mistress. This was a woman none present had ever seen before. And nor did they want to again, for the woman was clearly in a state of intense distress. Like a defendant in court who wants to arouse the sympathy of the jury by making themselves look as tired, stressed and pathetic as possible, she appeared in an appallingly dishevelled state. But she seemed to have gone too far for even the most easily moved jury to be able to stand to look at her. She was barefoot and half-clothed in rags. Skin more unnaturally white than the slaves' flower-coated bodies showed through what was left of her dress. She looked starving, and her head hung down, her loose hair hanging in tangled clumps across her face. What could be seen of her expression was unutterably, unbearably sad, as if nothing in the world could ever be right again. She had poured ashes over her head, and a grey trail of muck and soot tumbled down from her matted hair like blood. She started to walk towards the miller at his desk. Her movements were stilted and awkward, her body hunched over and her feet dragging as if every step caused her pain. Lucius shrank back in revulsion, but his master seemed transfixed. Every other man in the grounds was gaping at her in horror, but the miller's reaction was quite different. He gazed at the woman as if she were the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen. A small smile played about his lips as he let his stylus fall and slowly stood up to greet her. His eyes were soft, softer than Lucius had ever seen them, and certainly softer than they had ever been when he looked at his wife. He seemed oblivious to the shock of his slaves or the quiet muttering that was silenced only by the crack of the whip. He had eyes only for this woman. Finally, the woman finished making her slow, limping way over to the miller. Her head was hanging, 
but she seemed to try to turn it coquettishly, her strangled hair falling back to reveal one bloodshot eye. The miller's smile widened, and he looked at her hungrily. She leaned over and whispered something in his ear, laying a single hand on his arm. He smiled some more. Gently, she drew her hand down his arm to lace her brittle fingers in his and lead him across the yard to his own bedroom. After a moment or two of silence, the overseers cracked their whips once more, and the endless grinding work of the mill began again. Lucius, his message undelivered, paused a moment before scurrying away, out of the range of the lash. Several times that afternoon, Lucius tried to return to deliver the message to his master, but every time he was told the same thing. The master had not yet emerged from his bedroom, and nor had the mysterious woman. As evening fell and the heat of the summer day finally shifted from fiery sun's rays to the close warmth of the darkness, Lucius returned once more to find the yard half deserted. The chained slaves and animals were still there, but they sat on the ground, most of them laying their heads back and resting their eyes. Lucius followed the sounds of men arguing and something banging to the master's bedroom, where he found the overseers huddled around the doorway. They had been calling the master for some time, it seemed, and there had been no answer. They had knocked and were still knocking, but there was no response and no sound from within. "'We should break the door down!' cried one. "'Are you mad?' demanded another. "'Damage the master's property? Not to mention disturbing him while he's alone with a young woman? We'll all be crucified!' "'You didn't see the woman, mate,' another told him. "'If it was a woman!' I think it was a demon sent from Hades. No woman should look like that. My sister looked like that when they buried her, muttered another. Gods damn the woman, spat the first man. To Hades with her. We need the master. There's no more grain to grind. And if you think you'll be happy about us just stopping work and downing tools, you've got another think coming. You'll crucify us for that, sure as you like. A lot of general murmuring suggested that the first overseer had a point. Fine, agreed the second overseer eventually. But don't break the door down. Don't damage property any more than you have to. Break the hinges if you must, but leave the door intact. Lucius leant forward to help two of the overseers to pry the door hinges apart and lift the door itself free of them. That meant he got a full, clear view of what lay on the other side of the door. The miller hung from a beam in the roof, dead. He had obviously been dead for hours, and a slight smell had started to rise from his body in the heat. The strange woman was nowhere to be seen. Immediately the overseers began to wail and beat their chests in a show of grief. Perhaps, for them, the grief was real. They had a cushy position in the mill, might not be so lucky with a new master. Lucius backed away and brought the news to the shackled slaves sitting in the flower dust outside. They simply looked at him once and closed their eyes again. Not one of them dared to allow a glimmer of hope that their next master might be better. The sticky heat of the summer evening closing in, the overseers ordered the chained slaves to dig a grave quickly and buried the miller with little ceremony. 
Lucius went to bed, the wife's letter still in his pouch. The next morning, the household's attempt to sleep late was disturbed by the sound of a woman's wail approaching from the street. Nervous, the slaves gathered in the yard, the overseers clutching their whips and their canes. But this was no reappearance of the mysterious woman from the day before. It was the miller's daughter, who had run all the way from the next village over where she lived with her husband. No one wanted to have to tell her what had happened to her father, but no one had to for it seemed she already knew. The young woman had loosed her hair for mourning and was beating her breasts and keening a funeral dirge. For a little while, she simply sat by the makeshift grave and continued to offer her wailing and her self-flagellation in grief at her father's passing. But she was stirred to action when a familiar face appeared among the growing crowd outside the mill. The miller's wife had come for the reply to her message, still buried in Lucia's pouch. When she realised what she was witnessing, she tried to pull away, but too late. Her stepdaughter had seen her. Wicked harpy! screamed the young woman, throwing herself at her stepmother, once her childhood friend, attacking her with teeth and nails. Harlot! Whore! Spawn of Clytemnestra! You have killed my father! And she broke down, weeping. Dear one, what are you talking about? exclaimed the wife, appearing to be genuinely shocked and confused. I saw him, cried the daughter through her tears. I saw him. Late last night, in the dark, in my bedroom, he came to me. I saw his face pale, his eyes bulging, his throat bruised from the noose that was still around his neck. He could not have spoken with any human voice, but from the depth of his soul he told me everything. Who? Who came to you? Lucius could hear the crowd repeating the question all around the street. My father. He said he divorced you for adultery, but you would not accept it. You went to that witch on the edge of town. Here she scanned the crowd, but the black-clad woman was not among them. You ordered his death. The witch sent a spirit to fetch him and drag him down to the underworld. At this, the daughter threw her whole body at her stepmother and beat the other woman to the ground, pummeling her with her fists and scratching at her eyes. All the while, the stepmother screeched her desperate denials, but none believed her. All were convinced by the daughter's grief and fury. Finally, the mill slaves pulled their master's daughter away and held her back. Shakily, bruised and bleeding, the miller's wife got to her feet. I'll come back in now, she said quietly. We need to carry out the proper mourning rituals and then divide the estate. The daughter laughed a hard, cold laugh. There's no use pretending, bitch. My father divorced you. And even if he hadn't, you were married without Manus. This house, this mill, everything in it, she glanced around at the slaves and the animals, is mine. Get out. I never want to see you again. The miller's wife looked for help among the crowd, but found none. Hesitantly, she drew out her little T-shaped necklace and held it forward to some particular bystanders she seemed to recognise, displaying it like a token, but they turned their faces away and pretended not to know her. Finally, she limped away, 
her walk no less stilted and uncertain than the apparition that had appeared to her husband the day before. For nine days, the traditional mourning rites were observed. On the tenth day, the daughter took control of her inheritance. She wanted nothing more to do with the place that had seen the death of her father. Every slave and every pack animal in the mill was sold. you all enjoyed the story. The text I've taken it from is one of my favourite ancient texts. It's a novel called Metamorphoses by Apuleius of Medauros. In English translations the novel is sometimes called The Golden Ass. That's because the Roman poet Ovid wrote a long epic poem called Metamorphoses, so to try and avoid mixing them up historians often refer to Apuleius's novel uh, as The Golden Ass. I prefer using the title Metamorphoses. For one thing, I've read them both and I much prefer Apuleius's to Ovid's, but my dislike of Ovid is probably a subject for another time. I love Apuleius. He's one of my favourite ancient authors. He was from North Africa, uh, which was a Roman province. He was from Medauros in modern Tunisia. He was educated in Greece and he travelled widely. Uh, he wrote many, many more texts than we actually have. As with most ancient authors, we know that he wrote so many things that simply haven't survived. What we do have from him, uh, we have some philosophical texts, uh, philosophical texts called the Florida uh, and a text on the god of Socrates. We have the novel, The Golden Ass or Metamorphoses. And we also have uh, a fascinating text called the Apologia, the Apologia is Apuleius's defence. He was put on trial for witchcraft. He had married the mother of a friend of his uh, who was a little bit older than him, and that's very unusual. One of the things that I refer to sort of obliquely in the story is that Roman men tended to marry much younger women. Men would marry for the first time at the age of 28 to 30 thereabouts. Women would get married between 12 and 15, Women also, of course, might die in childbirth, so a Roman man might then marry another young woman at an even older age. And that's why in my story, the stepmother and the stepdaughter are childhood friends. They're about the same age. This is why, of course, stepmothers are so common. So Apuleius' marriage to an older woman was quite unusual. There were also two different types of marriage uh, in ancient Rome in the Roman world and that's something I refer to right at the end of the story as well. You could get married with Manus uh, in Manu or Cum Manu. That means the bride passes over into the Manus of her husband. Manus literally means hand. In this context it also means kind of power, it means responsibility. So if you're married with Manus, uh, the bride's property goes to the husband as a dowry uh, and she moves under his patria potestas. That's the power of the father. The Roman father had power of pretty much life and death over his whole household. Sons could be emancipated to go and start their own household, but women couldn't. 
a woman who marries her husband with Manus uh, moves into his household and comes under his power. And she then inherits his estate equally with the children. However, you could also get married without Manus, sine Manu. In this case, the bride remains under the Manus of her father and his patria potestas. So rather than being completely under the control of her husband, her father is the one with ultimate power over the wife in this case. If she does something wrong, the husband can send her back to the father, but the husband does not have the right to do whatever he wants with her. And in this case, if her father dies, she becomes the owner of her own property. She needs a tutor, a male, to sign off on things for important transactions. Uh, but she is essentially in control, especially if she has a sympathetic tutor. And her parents and siblings inherit when she dies. She could make a will to leave her property to her children, but the tutor would have to sign off on it. Now, we don't know for sure what type of marriage Apuleius and his wife Pudentilla had, but whatever it was, it was going to result in her fortune that she had because her father and first husband had both died. Her fortune was going to go originally to her children, Apuleius's friend and his siblings, and then after her marriage, it went to Apuleius instead. So basically, the in-laws don't seem to have been too happy and they accused Apuleius of using witchcraft to make her fall in love with him. They said she hadn't really liked him when they first met and that he had used black magic and witchcraft to get her to love him, to get her to marry him in order to get his hands on her money. I'm sure I'll probably do a blog or a talk or something about the apologia another time because it is absolutely fascinating. A few scholars have argued that it's fiction, um, that it's first person fiction rather than a real court case. But to be honest, I don't see any real need to think that. Magic was a capital offence in ancient Rome. There were people who claimed to be practising magicians and we know that because we have the scrolls and the spells. Um, we have plenty of material culture evidence of, now imagine I put inverted commas around the world, real, real witchcraft, certainly people who really claim to be witches. Uh, we know those people existed. Um, and certainly what Apuleius tells us about himself in the Apologia seems to match um, a entirely plausible life story and seems to tie in with the themes of the novel. So the metamorphoses, where I've taken this story from, most certainly is fiction. Uh, it is a novel in which the lead character, Lucius, is staying in Greece with somebody he doesn't know very well, uh, and the man's wife is a witch, and he sees her turn herself into a bird. Lucius is having an affair with one of the slave girls and persuades the slave girl to try to turn him into a bird, but it goes wrong, and she accidentally turns him into a donkey instead. He knows that in order to turn back into a man, he needs to eat roses, but before he's able to eat any roses, he gets stolen by bandits. And then a series of misadventures follows. He's kept by the bandits for a while. He's sold on, he's sold on, he's sold on to various different people. It's very complicated. The novel is pretty much put together from a whole bunch of different stories. There's lots of different bits and pieces of folklore, there's mythology, there's philosophical discussions. The 
basic structure is based on an older story about a man who gets turned into a donkey. And we have another much shorter version of it by the satirist Lucian. But Apuleius has massively expanded on it. And he's basically thrown all sorts of different things together into this story. It then culminates in a conversion story where Lucius the donkey falls asleep on a beach praying to whoever is listening uh, to help him and he is saved by the goddess Isis who tells him where to find some roses at a procession in her honour the next day. He then converts to the mystery cult of Isis. Now conversion in the ancient world does not require giving up the state gods and the traditional gods, you just add another religion. We know from the Apologia that Apuleius himself was initiated into several mystery cults because he tells us so. So the cult of Isis was one of the biggest, most popular mystery cults in the ancient world, in the Roman world. And historians have wept blood trying to work out whether this is meant to be a serious ending to the novel where Apuleius is encouraging people to join the cult of Isis or whether it's all a big joke. He's actually making fun of people who join this cult and particularly the amount of money they end up paying to the cult in order to join it. And that's something that I've written about um, in my book Dreams and Dreaming in the Roman Empire and it's something that I've talked about elsewhere as well. So this story is taken from a fair way into the novel. Uh, Lucius the donkey has been sold to a miller a very unpleasant Miller with an even more unpleasant wife. So when I rewrote this, I did a few things to adapt it, change it. I took some bits out, I put some bits in. The novel spends quite a bit of time with the Miller and his wife. It gives a lot of detail on their very bad relationship. There's a lot of tangents, there's a lot of digressions. Some of them were completely irrelevant to the ghost story part. Others I left out because they were really, honestly, just unpleasant. I love a good ghost story, but there's a good ghost story and then there's just nastiness. So the incident with the wife's young lover, where the miller takes him away for the evening and says they have to share him before whipping him in the morning, I had that briefly summarised rather than writing it in detail as it was uh, in the novel. I have also added some bits. The scene with the witch is added... I've based the characterization of the witch on a compilation of different ancient poems uh, and bits of literature featuring witches. So she lives on the outside of town because there's a fantastic description of a witch in the poem Civil War by the ancient poet Lucan, which called Eric though, uh, who I actually wrote my master's level dissertation on. And Eric though lives in the graveyards and she licks the blood off the nails that have been used to crucify people and she lives with the corpses. I've made my witch not quite as grim as that. Eric though is an extreme. My witch is a little bit more like the witches that tend to appear in love poems but I've given her a home on the edge of town to reflect that. Roman graveyards were outside of the town, outside of the gates. You don't want dead bodies buried within the town or the city, otherwise the ghosts might rise up and get you, as you can see from this story. So I've put my witch right on the edge of town so she has easy access to the graveyard if she needs it for her magic. I've also made Lucius the donkey into Lucius the human slave because I was rewriting this as a freestanding short story and not part of a longer novel, 
I didn't really want to get into why I was telling it from the point of view of a donkey. So <laughs> that's why I've uh, <coughs> made him a human slave rather than a donkey. But I've kept the name and I've kept him as the only named character as he is uh, in the original story. I've also added the final confrontation between the daughter and the stepmother. That's to give it a bit more structure, to tie it together, give it a proper beginning, middle and an end. We never really find out what happens to the stepmother in Apuleius's story. So to give it a dramatic finale, I've added the stepmother to that scene. Although the scene with the daughter is in the original. One of the striking things about the way Apuleius tells this story is when he describes the miller and the mill, he gives a paragraph over to a description of the human slaves in the mill and he talks about how incredibly unpleasant it is and how the slaves are being very, very badly treated. Nobody in the Roman world ever campaigned for the abolition of slavery. Slavery was simply part of their world and they accepted it as part of how the world works. However, some philosophers did argue that slaves should be treated humanely, usually because to treat somebody badly is bad for the soul of the person doing it. So you don't treat your slaves well because they are human and deserve to be treated well. You treat them well because it's better for your soul to treat them well. Stoics and Christians both thought that way. And there were also people in the ancient world who were human and thought that you should treat other human beings with you know, a bare minimum of human decency. Apuleius was primarily a Platonist philosopher rather than a Stoic, but it seems likely that he was among those people who felt that slaves should at the very least be given reasonable humane conditions. And it's even possible to see the whole of the novel as a metaphor for slavery. Lucius as a donkey is stolen, kidnapped, taken all over the place, sold and resold and resold, and he even ends up being used for sex towards the end of it, which I won't go into details right now. It's memorable, let me just put it that way. So I wanted to make sure I kept the description of the miserable state of the human slaves in the mill. I thought that was really important. It was important to what Apuleius was doing, at least in this section, if not the rest of the novel. And I think it's important from a modern perspective as well. There's also a reference in there to defendants on trial. In a Roman trial, if you were accused of something and you were trying to demonstrate you hadn't done it, you would sometimes make yourself look really bad. This was an attempt to get sympathy from the jury. Basically, you try and make yourself look as stressed as possible and as miserable as possible. So you don't do your hair properly, you don't do your clothes. If you're a woman, you don't do your makeup properly. You make yourself look very tired and bedraggled to try and get the jury to sympathise with you, to feel sorry for you, and to feel that, of course, you can't possibly have done it. Now, Apuleius in his trial may not have done this because quite a lot of his defence involves discussing how good-looking he is. Because he's been accused of using black magic to make a woman fall in love with him, one of the things he tries to do is show off that he's perfectly attractive and able to attract a woman without magic. So actually he may have been an exception to that rule. But I threw that into my description of the ghost as a bit of kind of ancient world colour, um, that this is something that people used to do, it was part of Roman culture. I've also made the unpleasant stepmother a Christian. This is something Apuleius suggests she might be in the novel, he doesn't specify. Um, Apuleius seems to imply at one point that some of his unpleasant indoors may have been Christian. 
It's hard to tell because in the ancient world, the word atheist could be used of Christians, occasionally of Jews or of Epicureans. Epicureans, a school of philosophy that focuses on the here and now. So when Apuleius calls somebody an atheist, you can never be quite sure exactly what accusation he's hurling at them. But Christians were not popular. They had a reputation for getting up to all sorts of weird things. They go away, they have these weird secret meetings where they drink blood and eat flesh. They come across as very strange. And in the Metamorphoses, Apuleius hints that maybe this deeply unpleasant woman, he describes how horrible she is in much more detail than I have because I was focusing on the ghost story part. But he implies she might have been a Christian. So I have obviously adapted that and made her much more firmly a Christian. The T-shaped necklace is, of course, an early form of the Christian cross. And Roman crosses, when they crucified people, often would look more like a T um, than the kind of more familiar symbol that we're used to now. So whether this story has any connection with afterlife belief, ghost belief, things like that is hard to say. It's probably an adaptation of a common ghost story. As I mentioned, the novel has all sorts of bits and pieces, folklore, myth, philosophy. He's, Apuleius has drawn on a whole bunch of sources. He himself was almost certainly religious. We know that from the Apologia. His animosity to Christians is certainly genuine. On the other hand, the protagonist of his novel gets turned into a donkey and Whatever he may have been accused of doing, I don't think Apuleius ever thought it was really possible for a man to turn into a bird or a donkey. So the story doesn't necessarily indicate belief in ghosts any more than it indicates belief that you could turn into an animal. An earlier version of the story, as I mentioned, was written by Lucian of Samosata, who definitely doesn't believe in ghosts or an afterlife. He's a satirist. He writes loads of satire going on and on and on about how unlikely the afterlife is in general. So just because the story is in a novel certainly doesn't mean anybody really believed it might happen. On the other hand, if it is a common ghost story, if it's something people are sharing that Apuleius has adapted, it might indicate some level of collective cultural belief in ghosts. It might mean that within what we might call the cultural imagination, the kind of shared ideas that people in that particular place and time have, it may have been thought possible that not only did ghosts exist, but interestingly, that they might be violent or dangerous. Ghosts actually killing people in modern ghost stories is relatively uncommon. It's very common in the novels, in things that are fiction with a specific author. But if we're looking at ghost stories shared by people because they're meant to be true, ghosts actually killing people is fairly rare. It's slightly more common in ancient ones, although not by much. But that may indicate that in the ancient world, ghosts were thought to be maybe potentially genuinely violent in a way that is less common now. I really hope you've enjoyed the story. I hope you've enjoyed hearing me chat about it a little bit. If you have any questions about anything that I've talked about or anything else you'd like to know, then uh, you can always drop me an email, juliet.harrison at staff.newman.ac.uk or you can find me on Twitter. I am at classicaljg. If you would like to read Apuleius's novel Metamorphoses or The Golden Ass, you can read it for free online. Older translations are usually available because they're out of copyright. The downside is that the English is rather archaic. It's very old-fashioned. 
it can be a little bit difficult to read. But you can read it for free at websites like www.sacredtexts.com, which is a great resource for all sorts of texts on myth, religion and so on. However, I would recommend if you want to spend a bit of money, <laughs> a very good up-to-date translation by Joel C. Relihan, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Um, this would be available from Amazon or any bookstore. It is a very, very good, much more up-to-date translation, um, which will offer something really a lot more readable. Um, and I would definitely recommend that. There's also a very good free translation at poetryandtranslation.com by A.S. Klein, who does really good modern up-to-date translations of ancient texts, which are freely available at the website. And I definitely recommend you go check that out. If you're looking for the story of the miller's wife, the core part of the ghost story is book nine, sections 29 to 31, although uh, Apuleius gives a lot more detail about the miller and the wife throughout book nine. There's quite a substantial section devoted to them. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this story and to my ramblings about it. I'll be back next month with a new retelling of an ancient ghost story and a chat about its origins and what I think it might mean for us who study ancient religion. Happy Halloween! Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It's produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>